uh, out of Mark chapter 15 is maybe the thoughts that Jesus was having and the example that he gave as he was uh, heading towards the cross. And so in 15 it talks about starting at 121, uh, verse 21, excuse me. It says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, uh, the father of Alexander of Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear the cross. And they brought to him the place near Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine and mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription above his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. As we look at Jesus' preparation for this, we know that before uh, time was that it was in God's design to reconcile man back and it was going to be done through Jesus. And so we're going to look at the, uh, the day or so before the actual crucifixion leading up to the crucifixion. And so we know that the night before Jesus' death, he washed the feet of his disciples that were with him. If any of you have ever been a part of a foot washing service, it's, it's pretty solemn. I know we do one here, and I've uh, been a part of them in other churches. And it's a very solemn thing. Some people look at it as a cultural thing because they wore sandals and were in the deserty places, and it was a soothing thing to the feet. But besides the physical aspect, there's a spiritual aspect. Everything that Jesus teaches and everything that Jesus does has both a spiritual and a physical aspect. And as we even look today, we're going to look at the physical torment that Jesus went through, but I also want us to look at the spiritual anguish that he was facing. So he's at the, this uh, foot washing, and he washed the feet of his disciples. And, and we know that Peter, Peter spoke out and said, Oh, no, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And, and uh, I should be washing yours. And Jesus says, if I, if I can't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And Peter's whole demeanor changed. He says, then give me everything, Lord. And so we see Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, down here washing his disciples' feet. What a humble position to be in. You know, God calls us as Christians to be humble. We fight the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, in the pride of life. And humility sort of flies in the face of, of all this sin. And, and so Jesus gives us this example of being humble and washing his disciples' feet. I also want to mention that he washed Judas's feet. He washed the one who was going to betray him. Jesus knew he was going to betray him, but Jesus still exercised that humility towards Judas. I think that that is just a, an amazing fact. You know, there's a saying that says, you really can't experience grace until you sit at the table with your Judas. And so as we look at this, we can learn some things from Jesus about his whole attitude, his whole demeanor, his whole focus on these things. And so he washed their feet, and then they shared this Passover meal with him. And it was the Passover meal that got transformed. And during this time is when uh, Judas was revealed as the betrayer. Uh, Jesus had pointed him out, and Judas, of course, he left. But he was the one that was going to betray his master and his Lord Jesus. And so at the conclusion of this meal, Jesus instituted what we call 
the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion, whatever words you want to use to it. He took the, the traditional Passover meal and he interrupted it. And we're going to teach on that sometime. But he interrupted that and he instituted this new covenant, this new promise towards the believers. And so he instituted this Lord's Supper. And after the meal, it says that Jesus then took his disciples uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus wanted to pray. He wanted this time to be with those that he's closest to. You know, if we sort of know in our life that we're drawing to an end, there's something in us that says, you know, I want to spend more time with those that I'm closest to. Jesus had this inner circle, and he wanted to spend time with his disciples. And so they went to the garden, and he pulled Peter, uh, Paul, and James, or excuse me, Peter, John, and James uh, aside. Those were sort of his inner, inner circle. And he wanted them to pray for him. And he said, pray that they wouldn't fall into temptation. Isn't it something that Jesus reminds us to pray for ourselves too, that we don't fall into temptation? Many times we're led astray. Many times we find ourselves in situations we don't belong in, but have we prayed for ourselves that, you know, Lord, lead us not into temptation. So Jesus says, go and pray that you won't fall into temptation. And then Jesus went off by himself to pray. And the Bible says, immediately those three fell asleep. You know, we do that sometimes, don't we? Um, my prayer time is usually in the morning because if I pray at night, I immediately fall asleep too. So I like to pray in the morning when I can be more awake, more focused on those things. But it says that these three uh, promptly fell asleep. And I find that sort of strange seeing that Jesus had just requested something of them. Many times in our life, Jesus requests stuff of us or asks us to do things, but we sort of put that off or other things get in the way. For them, it happened to be sleep. So alone, we read that Jesus was grieved and he was weighing heaven. We talk about the agony, the spiritual agony that Jesus was going through as he was preparing for this. Um, as he was approaching death, he knew that the hour had come. He knew that the time was at hand when he was going to be required to give his life. And it said that his sweat drops were as blood. Now, some I've read, uh, there's a medical condition, I think, that talks about that, where it says uh, under extreme stress or different things that uh, possibly your sweat can actually contain uh, some blood in it. I don't know if that's it, but it felt like blood. It was draining him of his, of his lively energy. He was under extreme um, pressure and anguish at this time. See, again, many times we sort of picture Jesus as just sort of walking, you know, and getting nailed to the cross. And we talked last week how when we see a lot of pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross, you know, he, he's all cleaned up. He looks, you know, just, he looks sad up there, but he's all cleaned up. We talked last week how he was really uh, beaten terribly beyond recognition. He knew all these things were going to come, and he was under anguish. He didn't know what this was all going to entail, a father turning and not being able to look on the sin, being separated from these things. And so we know that as he was praying and he had this sweat and he was in anguish, it also tells us that he asked God, you know, if there's any way that this cup can be removed from me, um, so be it. But if not, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus teaches us another important message here that many times we can pray our will. We have the way that we want to see things happen and the, the turnout for things the way that we want. But are we still willing 
to hand it over to God and say, but God, not my will, but your will. You know what my desire is, God. You know what, what my heart is. But Lord, I'm willing to accept whatever you have. And it wasn't the Father's will at that time to deliver Jesus from what needed to go through. The Father knew that this needed to be done in order that we would be reconciled back to him. And so in the garden, this anticipation uh, was great on, on Jesus' heart. And I, and I want to talk, it wasn't really the uh, anticipation of the, of the scourgings or the beatings or uh, the mocking or the horrible hours on that cross that were weighing heavy upon Jesus. I don't think that's what he was anguishing over. I think he was anguishing over the anticipation of carrying the weight of all the sin in the world. What was that going to be like? What was that going to look like? What was that going to, to feel like? You know, God had never experienced sin in his life. And here Jesus is facing that thing. Now, not to minimize crucifixion, but Roman soldiers um, were, were the masters of torture, the masters of torment. They had devised ways to, to really figure out ways to really torture people and make people suffer in their death. And the crucifixion was one. And so when I say not to minimize this, Jesus wasn't the only one that was crucified. There is many people that have been crucified in history. Many people that were nailed to the stake or to the cross and died that horrible, agonizing death. And not to minimize it, it was a terrible, agonizing death. But that's why I really believe that the, the torture, the agony that Jesus was going through was that of, of really carrying the sin of the world upon him, knowing that he had to do that. And so what did that look like, or what would that have felt like? And he didn't know, and it just had to be weighing heavy on him. So as he's really anguishing over this, it says that God sent an angel to strengthen him and to comfort him. Many times in our life when we're going through difficult things and and not to compare it at all with what Jesus did, but we go through our, our little valleys, and sometimes it's like, man, am I ever going to get through this? Am I ever going to get to the other end? I can't take it another day, another moment, uh, another, you know, whatever. And Jesus just called to the Father, and the Father sent an angel to help him. The Lord does that to us, too. He intercedes. He tells us that we aren't going to be tempted beyond what we can bear. He gives us his power, his strength. You know, Paul would say in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so when we're feeling weak, when we're feeling defeated, when we're feeling down, we need to turn our attention right towards the Lord and petition to him because the Lord is there wanting to give us his strength, wanting to give us his comfort. And so we see that God sent an angel to strengthen him. Then Jesus asked uh, the same again, Peter, John, and James, to pray that they would be loyal to him. Sort of an interesting thing, isn't it? Why would you pray, uh, ask your disciples who are faithful followers of you to be loyal to you? Many times when tribulations come, when troubles come into our life, um, we drift. We drift from church. We drift from our relationship to God. Maybe our prayer life is gone a little bit. Uh, we're not doing devotions the way we should. Maybe we're not going to church. Our relationship sometimes can get hindered in that. And so Jesus asked him, he says, pray, he says, to, to remain loyal to him. Well, we know what Peter did, right? Peter denied three times. There were struggles that were going to come, and Jesus says, I want you to be prayer for this. What well, did they go off and pray? 
No, it says that they fell asleep again. So he had shared his life for three years with, with these disciples, and these inner ones were the closest ones to him. And I wonder sometimes what Jesus thought. Of course, Jesus knew the beginning from the end. He knew all things of these men. He knew the trials that they were going to face, and he knows the same with us. He knows what we can handle, and he's not going to put us through more than what we can handle or allow us to go through more than what we can handle. And so he asks them to pray. Again, they fall asleep, but he continues on, and he's focused on the cross where he's going to. And he had poured his life into these men, and he knew that. And he knew, really, I believe, that they were going to continue on. But he was trying to teach them the importance of prayer, the importance of being right with God. And so then we see that Judas, the one that he had washed his feet only a couple hours earlier, the one who had left, he had been already pointed out as the betrayer, left. And it says that Judas walked up to him and greeted him as a friend, greeted him with a kiss, as some translations say, and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers. The one who had followed Jesus for three years, the one who Jesus had poured his life into, the one who he had washed his feet, came and betrayed Jesus at that point and handed him to the Roman guards. And so the next few hours, as we would read through it or we could speculate through it, were probably just a, a bunch of, uh, sort of a flash. You know, when you're going through sometimes terrible things, it just sort of like runs all together. And I really believe for Jesus, maybe this was happening, or at least for those that were around their experience, because the next few hours were filled with all sorts of things. They were filled with uh, these beatings, with these mockings, with these whippings. We talked about the, the cord of three that uh, had woven into it, sometimes little steel balls, but shards of bone that would actually flay your skin open. So just rip your skin apart. And he was whipped and whipped and whipped. The Bible says that he was beaten and whipped beyond recognition. So the one that you recognized just a few hours ago, you weren't going to recognize anymore. It wasn't a, a pretty um, you know, uh, picture of, of who Jesus was. He was beaten beyond recognition. And so we have all these things that are going on, and even the mocking of the king of the Jews. So they made him that crown of of thorns and pushed that down onto his head. And so the blood driplets were coming down his face. His back was uh, peeling and, and bleeding there. Wherever he was whipped and hit, those were all coming. It's not a pretty picture when we think of our Lord and Savior and what he did for us. And I shared last week, you know, with, the, um, with some of the movies that have been out that I haven't watched some of those. I can't watch some of them. I watched part of them and, I, and it just... It just it violates my, my very inner being to think that my friend, my Savior, had to go through that. But it's the picture and it's the reality, really, of, of what Jesus went through. He also went through the humiliation of, really, a, a, a bunch of um, illegal mock trials, they would call them. So you had uh, Annas and Sophias and uh, the Sanhedrin that all sort of had their own little mock trials. Um, and just, you know, ridiculing him, making fun of him with these beatings and all these other things. We also saw that he had the three Roman trials. He was before Pilate, and he was before Herod, and he was back before Pilate. Pilate says, I can find nothing wrong with this man. He's innocent of everything. Paul, or Pilate, excuse me, knew that Jesus was innocent, but finally he bent in to peer pressure. You know, there's a lot of times in our life we know the right that we ought to be doing, but we give in to peer pressure. Jesus says we have the strength that he gives us. 
We can stand up to those things. So to do right when everybody else is doing wrong. Pilate knew what was right, but he still bent in to uh, the will of the crowd that was shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And actually the crowd said, you know, turn this, this murderer loose and, and crucify this man who has done nothing. And Jesus was sent to the cross. And so when we come to the cross and we talk about crucifixion, I want to share some of the, the, the medical things that go through. I think it's just important that we can understand sort of the physical torment that is there before we get to the spiritual anguish. And so a medical doctor is the one who wrote this description. It says, the cross is placed on the ground and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The Roman soldiers feels for the depression in the front of his wrist and he drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist deep into the wood. I sort of think of railroad spikes when I think of that. But that's what they would do is find this and they would drive that through in deeply to the wood enough to hold the weight. Um, quickly, he moves to the other side, repeats the action, careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and some movement. The cross at that time is then raised and put into place. Then the left foot is pressed backwards against the right foot, and both feet extended, toes down. The same nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. That's considered the crucifixion right there. Once on the cross, he had the choice of resting his weight on the spikes driven into his hands or pushing up on the spikes on his feet, being able to breathe. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails and wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and arms and up, up to the brain and explodes in this pain. The nails and the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places the full weight of the nail on his feet. Again, he feels this searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. People who celebrated him a week earlier now are taunting him. Jesus watched the Roman soldiers divide his possessions before he died. And this is all a fulfillment, again, of, of Psalms 22, as we went through a couple weeks ago. As his arms fatigued, cramps swept through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Sporadically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from the lacerated back as he moves up and down against this rough lumber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain deep in the chest of the sac around the heart, slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. 
He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. Matthew 27, 46 would tell us this. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Finally, he can allow his body to die. That's the physical torment of going through a crucifixion. That's the torture that mankind has designed for one another. We still see things like that today. But this is a, uh, an event that he who is without sin, the special, precious Lamb of God, had to go through for us. So working in the prison system, we know many people that have done crimes and they can say, you know, I've done the crime, I deserve to be here. But the innocent doesn't. So we also look at the story of the crucifixion, and if we would have read on a little bit further in Mark, we would read about two robbers that were uh, crucified with him. Same agonizing pain, same uh, things that they are going through, one on the right and one on the left. One decided to mock Jesus and to ridicule him. If you're truly the Son of God, you know, call your Father down, have all these things done. But he wasn't realizing that Jesus was willfully going to the cross. There was no soldiers, there was no government, there was no army that could have made him go to the cross if he didn't want to go. He went because it needed to be done. He went because of his love for you and me. And so the one man mocked and ridiculed him, and the other robber uh, was just like, you know what, you and I, we're up here because we deserve to be up here. We have broken the law. We are criminals. We have done these nasty things. We deserve to die, but this man has done nothing. Jesus ended up with that man telling him, today you will be with me in paradise. Some people will say, well, that man never did anything other than a profession up on that cross, but I truly believe that if that man would have gotten off that cross, that he would have spent his life following Jesus. See, he saw the innocence that was dying for his sins. And I'm sure the Bible doesn't record a whole lot of things, of conversations that were going on up there, but I'm sure that there were some conversations that were going on. And so he let his body die, and it says when the soldiers came to break his legs, and that was sort of a, a typical method of, of hastening the, um, the death process that people were lingering on before the Sabbath, um, he was already dead. And as John said, he had given up his spirit. And so at this, the Bible records just these words. And they crucified him. The Bible doesn't give all what I just said. That's from a medical doctor's uh, perspective. All the Bible says is that mankind crucified him. You think what wondrous love is this that God has for you and I. That his son, Jesus, would go for God so loved the world that he gave. You know, and it says that he was obedient to death, even death upon a cross. That's a great love. And one of the greatest tragedies today is, is really the disdain that man has for the sacrifice that God has made and provided on our behalf. He has made that and, and we act and we live and we talk and, and we go about life like it has made no difference when the greatest gift of all was given at that moment. We know as we come uh, to Christ that without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sins. 
we know that he who is without sin became sin for us. And it says in, in Matthew 27, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the first time I would believe in, in all of eternity that the Godhead had not been in communion and had not been one with one another. Think of that. All the times before this, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all being one, were always in one together. But at this moment, the moment of sin, because God could not look upon sin, Jesus saw the darkness of sin in his separation from the Father for that brief moment. That was the anguish, spiritually, I think, for Jesus. To feel so alone, those who he had had all eternity been a part of, all of a sudden, torn away and gone. We know the good news, it didn't last for long. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. He was back with the Father, and they were all united. But for that moment, the anguish of just being separated from God. What about us in our life? A wasted life is one where really Jesus has been rejected. You know, I, I picture many times when I think of the crucifixion, I, I picture Jesus hanging upon this cross. And as he's looking down at people, much as I'm looking at you, he's going to see those that just a few days ago it said celebrated him. They were laying palms down. They were, hey, here he comes. And they were all happy. He's hanging now on the cross looking at those that had celebrated him at one time. But now that we're taunting him. He saw those soldiers that were gambling his clothes away. He probably saw maybe even, you know, those that would never, ever accept the gift that he was going to have. My mind, I'd be thinking, why am I doing this? These people aren't even caring. But he also had his mother out there. And he had enough in his mind to say, Mother, this is your son. Son, this is your mother. As he's hanging upon this cross, he had love for the world. That whosoever means whosoever. So he's up there and he's seeing everybody that's railing him to those that are weeping sadly because he is dying this death. He's, saw, he's seeing those that have followed him and been faithful. He's seeing those that had just turncoat on him. He saw all these people. What does he cry out from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't that a great love? To forgive those that know not what they do. Forgive those that have put these spikes in our hand. Well, we know that each one of us are the ones that nailed him to the cross. It was our sin that put him there. And he cries out, Father, forgive them. To those that were gambling his clothes away, Father, forgive them. To those that were never going to turn towards him and accept the gift that he was offering, Father, forgive them. For Peter, who is going to stumble a few days later and deny him three times. Father, forgive him. For you and I, who fall short many times in our Christian walk. Father, forgive them. But he does call us to a life of repentance. We look at the work that God has provided for us, but we spend our days acting like it really doesn't matter. You know, I really think if we would have been there, you know, we sing a song sometimes, were you there when they crucified my Lord? If we would have been there and if we would have seen that, would it make a difference in your life? Would it make the difference in the way that you live, the way that you talk, the thoughts that you have in your mind? Would it make a difference in the way that you treat others? See, God was full of grace. Jesus hanging upon the cross for something he never did, going through all this anguish physically, 
and facing all this anguish spiritually, said, Father, forgive them. He was full of grace. He was full of mercy. He was full of love. He looked down and he saw the potential in each and every one. And he said, whosoever, whosoever, I have given this for you. We spend our days acting like it has no meaning. And so he's crying out, come to me, come to me today. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Listen, if you're trying to get there by good works, if you're trying to get there because you've memorized some catechism or some scriptures in your life, that doesn't get it. That doesn't get it. It's a personal relationship with Jesus. It's looking at that cross and seeing him and saying, I put him there. I should be the one on that cross, not him. Jesus said, you can't. Just like Peter said, I should be the one washing your feet. Jesus says, if I can't do this, you have no part with me. Peter said, oh Lord, not just my feet, but my whole body. We may think, you know, of of our sin and that we should be there, but Jesus had to do it for us because he was the door, he was the way. So is your life a wasted one where Jesus has been rejected? Are you rejecting him in the way that you act, the things that you do, the places that you go? Or are you following him? Are you really truly following him? Come to him today. He says that he's going to change us from the inside out. I told somebody a while ago, I said, you know, I'm, I'm sort of tired of religious people. I just want to hang out with some Christians. Because religious people try to conform you. They try to clean you up on the outside, maybe thinking that the inside's going to get clean. But Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to start where the dirt is. And the dirt's on the inside. And he starts with our heart. And he starts with our being. Have you been washed by his blood? Have you been cleansed by that life-giving blood that was shed on Calvary? He gave his life that we might follow him. You know, we use these scriptures often, but if you love me, he says, you will do what I command. Don't have a form of godliness and deny his power. Don't honor him with your lips when your heart is far from him. Give him your heart. Follow him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. It's the power to save. It's the power to change. It's the power to transform. All the power is in the name of Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus that we are saved. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Jesus is our Savior. It's not our good works. It's not the things that that we like to boast about. It's not our pride, but it is Jesus, our total dependence and trust in that redeeming work on Calvary. Father, if there is someone here today that does not know you in that personal way, Lord, speak to their heart. Let them know, Father, that in the name of Jesus they can be saved. We are so thankful for the gift that was given. We are so unworthy to deserve it. As a matter of fact, we we really don't deserve it. It's just a gift that is given by grace from you. But Lord, what a gift it is. And so, Father, we are just so appreciative of that. And so, Lord, as we come closer to Resurrection Sunday, as as we think of the things that Jesus went through, we think of the pain and the agony physically, but we think of it spiritually also. Lord, there may be some of those that are struggling today, some spiritually in their life some physically in our life. Lord, help us to to commit our ways to you, to turn our eyes towards you, the one who has the answers for all these things. 
Father, we're thankful for our church family. We're thankful for our, our Christian friends, Lord. Help us to be an encouragement to one another. Help us to edify and lift up one another and, and just really walk with those that are having struggles in their life. Always, Lord, use us as a road sign that points the way to the one that we love so dearly. And his name is Jesus. And we ask this in that name. Amen.